sanctions have always had, perhaps intentionally so, a chilling effect on the margins. There, there's always a gray area, and I think that the, the regulators are happy having that gray area. Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. In today's podcast, our host and Rain founder, David Lawrence, speaks to Michael Gershberg, a partner at Freed Frank who focuses on international trade and investment. The topic? Western sanctions against Russia and how to navigate them. Michael, uh, great privilege to be able to speak to you at this particular uh, time in history. One of the ways I'd like to approach this conversation, because um, there's a lot of information, a lot of headlines around um, sanctions and uh, what's happening in day-to-day, there are new developments uh, in the Ukraine, is maybe we can take a step back and begin with an explanation of economic sanctions and a little bit about the history, and then we'll bring the audience up to the uh, present day. Sure. Uh, David, thank you very much for the opportunity to speak with you today. So just a little bit of background on economic sanctions in general. It is a tool of U.S. foreign policy um, that has been used for a number of decades. It is something that goes back, uh, its current form, certainly back to the the Cuba sanctions program starting in the 60s. Uh, But sanctions allow the U.S. government or, or other foreign governments to take actions uh, prohibiting certain transactions with foreign countries or individuals or entities that are contrary to public policy, either national security or foreign policy. There are a couple different ways that sanctions have traditionally been imposed. One is a comprehensive embargo. So, for example, with respect to Cuba and Iran and North Korea, for the most part, all transactions have been prohibited for U.S. persons. So that'd be U.S. citizens or U.S. companies. They're not allowed to invest in those countries or engage in any type of commercial activity. There are also sanctions, what we would call list-based sanctions, that individuals or entities can be placed on a a list for any number of reasons. Uh, It could be acting on behalf of a foreign government that's contrary to U.S. policy, or it could be for other reasons such as uh, weapons proliferation or terrorism or drug trafficking. And once somebody's put on one of those lists, a blocking list, it's essentially an asset freeze. Any assets they have in the U.S. are frozen, can't be accessed, and uh, U.S. persons can't deal with them. So those have been the two most common types of sanctions. But over uh, the past decade or so, the U.S. and other countries have developed some more targeted or hybrid sanctions, and some of those have been seen here in in the Russia conflict, Um, going back to 2014 when Russia invaded Crimea, the U.S. and the EU imposed sanctions that targeted just the debt and equity of certain listed Russian companies in 
sensitive sectors. So it, it wasn't a countrywide embargo and it wasn't exactly an asset freeze on individuals, but there have been um, restrictions since then that aim to restrict Russian access to capital uh, in certain industries uh, and also Russian sovereign debt transactions more generally have also been restricted. Um, And the U.S. has expanded that type of targeted sanction to Venezuela and other countries. Uh, It it is a way, an in-between way of restricting U.S. capital from flowing to sectors of the Russian economy that the U.S. is seeking to target. So there have been a number of sanctions tools at the disposal of of U.S. governments. And since 2014, as I mentioned, with the invasion of Crimea, the sanctions have progressed. In 2018, the U.S. also imposed sanctions against a number of Russian oligarchs and companies that they controlled. Uh, Those targeted, for example, Viktor Vexelberg and Oleg Deripaska, who had significant holdings in Russian companies. Um, and, And since then, there have been a number of incremental sanctions targeting dealings in Russian sovereign debt uh, and other financial instruments. Um, They've had, I would say, limited uh, effect because the U.S. as a whole um, has relatively limited exposure to the Russian economy um, and vice versa. It's not the same in Europe and the U.K. where there is a much greater uh, economic Interdependence and activity uh, with Russia, not so much here in the United States. So, so there's just been a, a limit to how much effect that can have. Um, and, but that brings us up to the last week of February when Russia invaded uh, Ukraine as a country, and that uh, set off in response a number of sanctions measures by the United States in coordination with the UK and EU and a number of other uh, allied governments around the world. And those sanctions have come in a number of flavors. So there's been, again, more targeted uh, financial sanctions against banks and dealing in debt or equity of certain uh, companies. Also more asset freezes, a number of Individuals, oligarchs, members of the Russian government, and others have been put on sanctions lists. Um, so they and their assets are essentially essentially blocked uh, outside of Russia. Um, and then since then, we've seen almost a daily, or at least a few times a week, a progression of um, other more targeted measures, including export control restrictions, important export bans, um, seeking to restrict activity with Russia, both imports, exports, and financial activity. Um, It's really now at this point a complicated web of restrictions. There there is short of a comprehensive embargo, um, but is a way, I think, to try to target what the U.S. government sees as, as the sensitive or the vulnerable parts of Russia and its supporters without causing uh, undue harm to to the U.S. economy and to to U.S. companies. So there's a great overview, Michael, and I want to maybe just tease out a couple of important themes. Number one, while people may uh, be exposed to a um, 
this enforcement process of sanctions and asset freezes, this may be somewhat new to them. Uh, the point you're making is that this actually goes back, you know, 60 plus years uh, as a tool of statecraft that the U.S. government has used uh, for protecting national interests and for promoting certain policies and negotiations. Secondly, as you've pointed out, it is a process that, I'll, I'll use the word titrate, uh, that the government can titrate moving up or moving back, depending upon world events. And um, also you properly pointed out the fact that um, sort of recent events have militated a global uh, sanctions regime where um, U.S. sanctions were leveled in coordination with uh, U.K. and E.U. Uh, so that uh, the imposition of sanctions and asset freezes, etc., is hardly a unique tool of statecraft uh, for the U.S., but other countries and other regions have deployed them as well, uh, including there have been U.N. Uh, sanctions that have been imposed on uh, various individuals and uh, entities. Yeah. Fair summary of some of the um, important themes implicit in, uh, in, in sanctions laws. So um, let's talk about what's happening now because companies are scrambling, and I know you're, you and Fried Frank are advising uh, some of the leading companies around the world. And this has been a uh, interesting, another interesting exercise is that the government has U.S. and EU and U.K. regimes have uh, been very, very public about the imposition of sanctions and what they're responding to. And maybe you can give us a, a, a bit of an insight about how companies should be following this and thinking about what I'll refer to as what might be around the corner. Right. This, this has been a quickly changing situation. Um, and what makes it difficult for global companies is not only is the situation developing day by day, but there are a number of overlapping legal regimes. The U.S. rules, the EU, the U.K. rules. Some companies are subject to more than one of those, and they vary. They're coordinated, and they're intended to uh, to be similar and uh, have similar effects, but there are differences. There are different sanctions lists. There are different implementation periods and timing periods, different uh, exemptions. So it, it is difficult to maintain an up-to-date global compliance policy. And then what we find perhaps most striking is that some of the the largest challenges and some of the most important decisions that companies need to make are not actually legal decisions based on legal requirements, but in fact based on call policy, reputational, or political considerations in conjunction with commercial realities. So what we mean by that is we've seen essentially a number of U.S. companies and Western companies in general engaging in what might be called voluntary sanctions. Companies are going beyond the legal requirements to voluntarily withdraw from the Russian market to stop dealing with Russian customers or Russian suppliers, and many companies are vocal about that. Um, it's been done as a matter of public relations, either independently or after being called out by, um, by, by other 
commentators. So number one, companies need to determine from the top at a management level, um, what is the company policy? Um, of course, you need to comply with the legal requirements. But beyond that, uh, there are restrictions that are just necessitated by commercial realities. And that is, even if a transaction can be engaged in legally and certain uh, activity is still permitted, it may be difficult in practice to actually perform um, because you have um, difficulty making payments and receiving payments, you have difficulty lining up shipping and insurance and financing and things like that, um, in part because of other companies taking this voluntary stance. Um, so companies need to decide what's their policy. Are we going to continue doing what's legally um, allowed or are we going to pull back uh, entirely from Russia? And and I don't say that as um, that it's an easy question and there are countervailing considerations on both sides when companies pull back then you know they are also um, in in many cases withdrawing you know economic benefits to to Russians on the ground um, so that's number one companies need to decide what is going to be their policy and, and how they're going to consider these issues and that needs to be a, a high level decision uh, and then number two, when companies have decided that they are going to continue with some transactions with a Russian nexus um, because it's perhaps important to their business and therefore to their customers, uh, then it's important to have compliance policies um, that are up to date and have the resources to to monitor the continuous changes because the sanctions lists are always changing, so companies need to be up to date on on all of their um, commercial partners and whether they're still permitted, and all the payment mechanisms to make sure that they're still permitted. Um, so it, it is largely a um, a fast changing legal environment as well as a commercial and, and political situation, um, and that's I, I would say. Uncommon. It's a little unprecedented uh, as far as I've seen in, in terms of the sanctions world that companies are really getting out there ahead of legal requirements and saying that we're going to take these actions voluntarily. You see a number of um, U.S. state pension plans early on were seeking divestment from, from Russia uh, and Russian assets. And then um, you see another number of companies that are um, vocally and publicly pulling out from Russia. I think it happened on a much smaller scale in 2014 after the invasion of Crimea, but a number of those companies did go back to Russia um, right after that. So uh, I do think that it's something that companies need to consider, but I, I am not taking a position that there's only one right way to handle the situation. So uh, important points. And uh, without dating myself, uh, but when I did get to Goldman Sachs, uh, and this was not in the middle of any kind of geopolitical crisis as we're in now, but uh, one of the things that did not exist, Michael, uh, was software uh, for enterprises to be able to screen against um, for compliance and against the various lists that the government put out. And, you know, we were able to create um, 
with uh, Thompson, and the, which became Thompson Reuters, uh, a product that went out in about 90 days. And, you know, we just sort of released it uh, to the industry. But the point you're making here is, is one that I want to make sure the audience hears, which is particularly in an environment where that is fast evolving, fast changing, names are being added, um, and not just on the U.S. list, but broadly, um, there are now so many countries and in a global economy, um, so many countries that have their own sanctions lists uh, that are coming out. Um, there is no way that, I don't care how many people you hire, that you can stay on top of this, but the importance of having good software that you're running on your enterprise that is kept current, and there are a lot of great providers out there now, that's the good news, uh, is essential for a company. And it's not just whom you're dealing with, it's where your money is coming from and where it's going and um, whom you're advising. And, and uh, so it's not necessarily commercial transactions don't necessarily have to be um, consummated, but even working with some of the entities becomes prohibited activity. And so the importance of having good enterprise-wide software and having it run against uh, all centers of your business activities, particularly for global companies, is essential. So I assume that that's a point that uh, that you would fully agree with. Absolutely. that That's the number one piece of advice to have proper screening procedures. And I would just add a few points. There needs to be rescreening periodically because the lists are changing. So screening when a customer is onboarded uh, and then perhaps again right before the shipment goes out. And then periodic rescreening of your whole customer database because the uh, situation is changing so fast. And of course, that's risk-based depending on a, a company's uh, customer base. But then one other thing that I would note is in addition to the importance of this uh, software solution. There also has to be a human element to put in the correct information. So uh, in addition to the name of your customer or the counterparty, you may also need to know their majority or controlling shareholders because um, that's relevant from the sanctions perspective. And then when the screening tool comes back with some hits, you will need a person to review and go through those hits to determine if they're actual hits or false hits. Um, so Technology is great, but there will still always need to be a human element uh, at the end of the day to uh, to sift through the results. A absolutely. Yeah. I'm glad you made the, those additional points. But it starts with, and, and the good news is about some of the technology is that the way it runs these days, um, it can keep you current so that if uh, someone is fine today, but um, because, as you said, Michael, it's you know garbage in, garbage out. You have to be have the right names that you're screening for entities and people and their issues of false positives that need to be resolved. Uh, but the software that, that now exists out there uh, basically runs 24-7. Uh, so if new information, it should be able to highlight a uh, particular hit. And you were modest enough to say that uh, having experienced outside counsel is also important because there are questions in the gray area. Uh, that that can uh, come up, but let me go back to another theme that you were emphasizing, which are the we'll call them voluntary sanctions, um, somewhat unprecedented, at least sort of in my uh, experience, is the uh, are the steps that 
leading institutions and as you said, you know, even pension funds and, um, you know, LPs within private equity firms are taking, that this is not just a matter right now of complying with the letter of the law. Uh, people are interpreting the spirit of this and they're, they're thinking about reputational risk. They're thinking about down the road, what other sanctions might be imposed. And so, you know, should I make a, a reputational and commercial decision today to pull up stakes? And also from a public relations standpoint, as you know, we're in a environment where there's a fair amount of activism by, I'll call it broadly, stakeholders. It can be everything from shareholders to NGOs to even inquiries from government officials. Um, but they they are now, you know, if I were to think about this as, as the blast radius, I, I think it was Tom Friedman who was uh, being interviewed about Russia and the Ukraine and was talking about the potential impact of sanctions. I think he used the metaphor of the blast radius. But the blast radius of these sanctions um, seems to be growing more and more and every day brings an announcement. And so uh, the importance of thinking this through past the letter of the law of what you might be able to do versus what you're prohibited from doing and having general situational awareness uh, broadly but certainly within your industry. Uh, I, I hear that as an important theme in terms of uh, the advice you're giving here. Mm -hmm. Yes, it, it is. And I, I would just note a couple additional points there. I think sanctions have always had, and per perhaps intentionally so, uh, a chilling effect on the margins. There, there's always a gray area, and I think that the, the regulators are happy having that gray area because it, it does chill some potentially lawful uh, commercial activity um, on the margins and increases the actual force of the sanctions. Um, in this case, that's happening not just for legal reasons, but as you say, for, for a number of, of other reasons. Um, and some companies are making the determination for policy PR reasons. Some are making the determination purely to de-risk and say, uh, or we want to decrease our compliance burden, and therefore we're just going to have a blanket policy on, on no Russian business in order to decrease our, our compliance uh, burden. But the one last point I want to make here is that it's not always such an easy decision, and it depends on the particular company's exposure to Russia, because Russia has been making some noise about countermeasures and potential criminal penalties and asset seizures when Western companies pull out of Russia. So uh, Western companies do need to think about whether they have personnel in Russia um, that might potentially be affected, or is it more simply a matter of selling off Russian assets? Um, or, or because any assets that the company may still have physically located in Russia uh, certainly could be subject to, to seizure. And then companies are also thinking down the road, you know, what comes next? We don't know what comes next. And everybody, of course, is focusing on the short term. And there's good reason for that. But companies may very well want to position themselves to be able to return to the market um, when it's appropriate in the future. So th there are a lot of 
considerations from a number of perspectives and, and you're right. There are stakeholders there as well. Um, and there are a number of, um, you know, stakeholders to, to consider in, in this decision. Right. And indeed, um, there's been the threat of the loss of your trademark. Uh, and, you know, I'll just use this as a company that was prominently in the news, but, you know, McDonald's may find that, uh, at least in Russia, it no longer controls its name or its brand or its uh, operations. Um, so there is a, um, a lot to consider. And to that end, Michael, uh, there are companies that want to do the right thing. But part of that involves, as you say, unwinding and getting appropriate guidance. And sometimes the process of unwinding your relationships, your commercial activities, um, means that potentially um, you have to engage in prohibited activity in order to pull out, in order to unwind investments, in order to unwind um, what I'll refer to as uh, partnerships and things like that. And um, we have seen, at least in the past, you know, the government, the sanctions, whether you know, Russia, Venezuela, other parts. And, you know, recently we've seen it as a tool of, st- of statecraft involving China and the issue around um, human rights and uh, the labor camps involving Uyghurs and, you know, military activities and things like that. But um, unwinding is not an easy process as you're pointing out, not only in terms of the decision, but the actual execution. And so as sanctions are leveled, sometimes, and and purposely so, the the government understands that we have to go broad, and if we have to, you know, make exceptions or offer licenses, or maybe sometimes maybe redefine the sanctions, we will do so. And maybe you could take our audience through the process, because uh, it is not a black and white thing. Um, there are often licenses and exceptions that are granted. And I think it's important for the audience to understand that there's a, a bit a bit of pliability when sanctions are imposed and sort of how um, one engages with or, you know, what, what is that process? What, what does that process look like and how does it work? When OFAC, OFAC is the Office of Foreign Assets Control, that, that's the office within the Treasury Department that um, oversees most of the sanctions. So when, when OFAC imposes these uh, sanctions, there's very often a wind-down authorization that goes with it. Uh, it is usually time-limited, uh, and in this case, there are a number of these wind-down authorizations. So within a certain period of time, companies can continue to perform under pre-existing contracts, they can't start new commercial activity, but they um, are able to wind down existing contracts and existing business. But those general licenses that allow that do have specific conditions. So you need to go by the, you know, the, the, the letter of the law there to make sure that the steps the companies are taking to wind down are all in compliance. For example, any payments that might need to be made to a sanctioned person can't actually go to that sanctioned person, but needs to go into a blocked account, um, which 
is not something that the sanctioned person would generally be interested in if it if it had the option. Um, so the first step is reading carefully all of these wind down authorizations uh, to see what options the companies have to um, to wrap up existing commercial relationships that, that were um, set there or to, to get out of um, Russian relationships if possible. And beyond that, uh, if you're not covered by one of those, then you would need to go to OFAC for a specific license to apply for it. Now, unfortunately, the problem is that those are not uh, issued quickly. It's bureaucratic process. It needs to go through an interagency process. And especially now, given everything that's going on and the workload, they're not going to be issued very quickly. So a couple thoughts. Number one, if there is a matter of real urgency, uh, and the government doesn't really always consider commercial urgency, but but real urgency of um, human life and safety of, of personnel or some other um, issue that is extremely time sensitive, that should be notified immediately to, to OFAC. That is one of the few situations in which there's a chance that they will move um, very quickly uh, in issuing some type of license in order to to protect people. The the second is if there's an issue that is of uh, general interest across an industry or across the economy that affects a number of large companies, it's worth uh, bringing that up along with um, trade associations or um, groups of companies that have the same issue. So, the the U.S. government is more likely to issue another exception or some public guidance if it's an issue that has brought to its attention, has um, an effect and a large effect across a number of companies and a number of industries. There are often just uh, unforeseen consequences that, that OFAC didn't realize or wasn't able in time to, to adjust for. So that's the second issue. If, if you're able to band together with like-minded companies to bring this issue to OFAC's attention, more likely to get some type of a general relief. Uh, and and then the third, of course, is, is if um, that that's not possible you do apply for a license and uh, keep calling and and following up and making it known to OFAC how, how urgent it is the last point I would make is as a lawyer of course I cannot advise any client uh, to take any action that's not in compliance with law but um, it is possible that there might be some small steps that companies take that might be in a gray area and if it's taken with the intent of winding down operations and does not provide any benefit to a sanctioned person then um, there is generally a low risk of of sanctions enforcement in those cases and also um, there is a process um, by which um, sort of questions get answered uh, by OFAC, sometimes with the publication of, you know, if they get enough questions from an industry or, you know, or repeat questions from different uh, inquiring corporations, uh, they do publish uh, FAQs from time to time. And uh, I'm sure they are inundated now, Michael, but uh, in the past, they have taken calls from counsel on a no-names basis, meaning 
without revealing who the client is about certain areas to get further guidance. And maybe you could just very briefly tell us about that process. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. It's always an option to contact OFAC if there are specific questions. And again, it can be done uh, on a no-names basis. That's easiest for lawyers, of course, uh, just to say it's it's a question we have generally. Um, Number one, as David said, it's important to raise the issue because if a number of other companies have raised the same issue, it's more likely that OFAC will issue an FAQ or other public guidance. Um, And number two, it's more likely that personnel within the agency will have discussed it and come to some type of answer that you might be able to to get actionable guidance. Um, If the issue is one that's been considered by OFAC in the past and they have a an answer ready then then you might be able to get some actionable guidance uh, unfortunately since the government is, is always going to be cautious in giving uh, advice over the phone because many things are fact specific there's there's always a good chance that OFAC will say we can't tell you exactly what the answer is but please feel free to send us an email with all the facts and we'll try to get back to you with some type of answer um, which they do occasionally uh, or we'll take this into consideration for future FAQs so while it's it's by no means guaranteed to yield actionable advice it, it certainly is worth reaching out to OFAC um with the one caveat that if a company is prepared to move in a certain direction, you may not want to ask a question to which you don't want to receive a bad answer. These types of questions and these types of inquiries should always involve outside counsel uh, for a variety of reasons, but uh, not the least of which is to uh, make sure that you have the ability to uh, have the you know, a defense based upon advice of counsel, but also that you have experienced counsel that's really thinking through these things. This is, uh, what, what, what's the old admonition? Uh, kids, don't try this at home. Uh, Michael, in, in the few minutes uh, remaining, I'd like to ask you to peer ahead because uh, a lot has been spoken about uh, in terms of the ability, I'll, I can use the verb titrate, titrate up additional sanctions that um, can have a meaningful impact. It's meant a little bit as the, I guess, the carrot and the stick. I want to remind uh, our corporate listeners that while they think they're doing commercial business around the world, um, they've actually been conscripted into State Department, Treasury Department, and broadly uh, national security matters. And I say conscripted because... You know, no company that I know, Michael, volunteers for this type of duty. But basically, as a policy matter, uh, view companies and their business activities and the commitment of people and capital and ideas as, you know, I'll I'll use the word soldiers in this effort to um, respond to aggressive and what many people are now calling uh, criminal activity. And as part of the U.S. and Western countries' uh, foreign affairs and their policies, um, 
whether companies recognize it or not, and certainly I don't know any company that willingly volunteered for this. But um, companies are, in fact, important, you know, we'll call it soldiers in this effort. And uh, this is all intended, I think, to as a way to avoid uh, far more tragic and devastating military confrontations. And so as you think about how I think the government, and you're free to disagree with my analysis here, Michael, but as you think about how Western governments view corporations and their commitment of people and capital and ideas around the world and how that can be useful in terms of advancing various policies, what do you see ahead? What else might, if conflict continues, might Western governments be doing uh, in the sanctions area that they haven't yet done? Right. So the current picture is really, as I said earlier, a complicated web, but there are still lots of spaces within that web. And it, it looks like Congress is moving to withdraw Russia's most favorable nation or MFM status, uh, a trade benefit as a WTO member, that would have the effect mostly of increasing import tariffs on imported Russian goods. Now, how many Russian goods are still going to be imported uh, remains to be seen. Now, that's, again, intended to to push at certain sensitive sectors. But on the other side, as, as we've seen over the past several years with increased import tariffs, those also have the effect of harming U.S. importers and downstream industries. So there is plenty of space. The real question is, when those holes are plugged up, will any of those individual actions make a material difference? And really, the big holes on the global scene are China and India and a few other countries like you know Brazil and South Africa that are not aligned with Western sanctions currently. So Russia's main export has been oil and gas. That still is an option. And while shipments have been slowed down for a variety of reasons, as long as Russia is still able to sell oil and gas to a number of large consumers and countries, it will still have funds to keep going. So the the main tool that is left that might have a material effect uh, on the Russian economy, if not necessarily on President Putin's decision-making, would be the imposition of secondary sanctions on foreign countries that buy Russian oil and gas. Uh, That was imposed against Iran, um, although in that case there was a much broader international alliance that we don't quite have here with a number of big uh, companies and countries outstanding. But that might be one last move. Um, It would certainly uh, alienate China. China's already warned the United States not to do this, but uh, that's certainly one option that would really shut off the, the availability of finances to Russia. And similarly, in Europe, they have more energy dependence on Russia. So Europe would need to, to make a move. It's already made moves in that direction, but it would more quickly, more comprehensively have to move to shut off any energy purchases from Russia. Um, now that, as I said, cuts off the financing, 
But looking back at the history of sanctions and with the decision makers in Russia, it really is an open question of, of what, if anything, could be done that would have a material effect on uh, the situation on the ground. So we don't know until all the levers have been pulled, but, but those seem to be some of the levers still remaining uh, that, that may be pulled. Michael, thanks. These have been great insights, context, and hopefully sort of a framework of what companies need to think about as, they, as we move forward and, and, and sort of why. Uh, I will point out there are a couple of topics that I'd love to continue to discuss with you, Michael, such as the effectiveness of sanctions and what I'll refer to as the unintended consequences. You know, we have a number of uh, corporate clients who have raised the following with us and no doubt with you as well, that um, when they see sanctions on Russian oil, uh, but knowing that there are other markets for it, such as China and India and, you know, elsewhere, and they see us um, now negotiating with uh, other sanctioned countries, such as Iran and Venezuela, to potentially purchase their oil. Um, A number of corporate leaders have sort of wondered you know, um, whether we have thought through all the intended and unintended consequences here. So maybe we can save that for another conversation. So, Michael, thanks so much for sharing the time with us and look forward to the continued conversation. Thank you, David. It's good speaking with you today. Michael Gershberg focuses on international trade and investment at Freed Frank, the law firm known globally for providing effective business solutions to sophisticated challenges, often creating the precedents that others follow. You can connect at FreedFrank.com. That's F-R-I-E-D, Frank.com. Rain offers risk intelligence solutions to more than 400 leading corporations, government agencies, and academic institutions. They turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. Learn more about us at RAINnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E-Network.com. Thanks for listening. 